How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Pedro Mora. Also from The Athletic, you are listening to The Scribe of Summer, a show about the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are the world champions of baseball, Pedro? Yes, that's that's true, Andy. They won that's it all. True. They did. They really did. How about that, huh? It's been, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, look, like, it's hard to really discuss this without kind of, you know, talking about what happened after the World Series ended, uh, you know, Justin Turner coming back onto the field as an active COVID case. I would suspect that most Dodger fans don't really want to rehash this at this point, you know, two days later. But there was a bit of news yesterday uh, in terms of how Major League Baseball, at the very least, is, uh, you know, I don't know if spinning is the right word, but the way they are positioning themselves, it seems like, based on that statement, they are going to look into some sort of discipline for Turner. Yes, and they were really the first, you know, um, public criticism of Turner's decision, right? That, that was what was I, I found particularly unusual in the night, or, I mean, everything about it was unusual, but on Tuesday night, there was really, you know, everyone was, I mean, Andrew Friedman did not really criticize Andrew, uh, Justin Turner for what he decided to do and said essentially that... He, he, he stuck to one note, which was that they were all going to have to undergo contract raising anyway and, you know, didn't decline to place any blame on Turner whatsoever. Yesterday on a SiriusXM show, Josh Burns, an executive, did call Turner's decision a lapse in judgment a couple times. And that's the first time anyone from the organization has, um, has in any way admonished Turner for his decision publicly. It's a difficult spot for the organization because, one, you know, if we're going to be apportioning blame, the team deserves some for not Absolutely. intervening. And two, Justin Turner is, you know, rightfully a beloved player within the organization, you know, among among both the executive class, you know, the coaching staff and the actual players. You know, he's a very, very well-liked person uh, in the organization and for a good reason. You know, he's done a lot of good things for the team, a lot of good things in the community. He's the sort of player you want to build around. You know, that said, like a lapse in judgment, bad decision, irresponsible thought or whatever. Yeah, he did that. And so, um, you know, I think it is reasonable to be frustrated, uh, you know, with one person's bad decision. A lapse in judgment is really the kindest way you can put it. Yeah. You know, and that's, he's also, you know, I should add, we should add, he's also a free agent. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, you know, something of a complicating factor, I think in, you know, in bringing him back, uh, you know, that kind of has to go into the, the calculus, but then like, unfortunately we lack a sort of consensus among Americans about the severity and seriousness of you know the pandemic and so i don't know if fans actually care outside of being you know a portion of them are probably very upset with him and a portion of them are probably don't care they just want to enjoy the championship so it's uh i don't know how how this factors into you know his future dealings with the organization no i i don't either and I, you know I, I also i think you're right about the the wide scope of what of the opinions and and responses we have not seen to his decision I would add, you know, if you're a fan, you make it through a season based on accepting the things you cannot control. 
you can't be upset about everything that you don't agree with, right? And so I, I'm sympathetic <laughs> right. to anyone who understands who was upset about that, but didn't want to let that entirely. I mean, they had no choice say in the matter. You know, if you're a fan waiting three decades for this, and then you're you're feeling the most joy you felt in months, and then you see that. I don't want to tell you that you can't experience more joy about the win. It's a tough position to be in for certain. I want to make one point, one more point, and then we can just move on because, as I said, I think fans are probably exhausted with this. And, uh, you know, there was a lot that actually happened on the baseball field. But I do just want to say that, you know, one of the main issues that this country has had throughout the pandemic is institutions failing to protect us from individuals who make bad decisions and putting basically the onus on people themselves rather than having guardrails put in place to protect against it. And so I think that while Justin Turner deserves criticism for, you know, an irresponsible action, I think Major League Baseball, the Dodgers, the, you know, county health officials, the Players Association, the fact that there was not built-in safeguards to protect against something like this, which seems like a relatively reasonable outcome if you're game planning worst case scenarios. The fact that there was nothing outside of someone telling him, hey, no, 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 please, uh, you should actually not go out there. It's a pretty damning thing for the sport writ large. We did an emergency podcast that night and we said (laughs) that Major League Baseball, I mean, there were so many levels of failure that invo- that were involved in. The commissioner lied, you know, in 20 minutes earlier, you know, when he spoke on national television and said that he was at least indicated that, he, or at least uh, <laughs> did not give listeners and watchers a proper understanding of the circumstances when he said that Turner was in isolation. I, I mean, when you say in isolation, you don't mean, you know, 10 feet away from other people. You know, it's say, you know, you send him away. That's the whole reason for that policy. It's not to leave him one open door, you know, one door away from going back on the field. And, you know, if there's ever a circumstance in which someone is liable to make a lapse of judgment, it is, you know, in the most emotional, on the most emotional night of their lives. There's four levels or five levels of, of tiers that were supposed to have been in place to prevent things like this. And like we saw throughout the season, Major League Baseball failed. You know, really throughout the summer, players saved their ass, you know, I think, by actually acting more responsibly than anyone could expect for months. I want to say this too, you know, like I was talking to an executive recently and kind of, I I, I said that, you know, I said, really like this is up to players. He's like, it is, but it's also up to, you know, the tier two guys, you know, the the guys who aren't in uniform who had to maintain all the same amount of discipline. Uh, without the compensation, the guys, without, without the yeah. compensation, the guy, who don't have a union protecting them, you know, the guys who, uh, you know, had to ride herd on the players as like the enforcement officers, you know, like all that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of people who deserve credit for the season getting to, uh, you know, the, the finish line. Um, you know, the commissioner's office is not where I would apportion that credit first. Um, so anyway, let's talk about baseball. If, if you want, uh, let's, let's stick to sports, man. What was your reaction when Kevin Cash went to the mound? Were you surprised? You don't seem like you're surprised by anything. I was very surprised by that, absolutely. Second most Whoa. surprising second most surprising thing in the series. Yeah. It made no sense. There's nothing he can say that you know, and if in a decade someone from the Rays is, is explaining to me what happened, like I'll, I, I really there has to be some crazy force majeure for me to understand why they would do that. I had not seen a pitcher that dominant in, in maybe all season. Since Blake Snell in game two. He was, but he was better because he, went, <laughs> he, he got through the good. fifth. And, and he didn't even have a, a bout of command, really, issues. He, he, I don't think he threw three consecutive balls. I mean, it was at that pitch count, it's inexcusable. I mean, it goes along with what we've been or what I've been learning in the last few years that, like, you can believe in the data all you want, but you have to understand that a person's confidence plays a role, right? It's the same. It's like momentum, clutch, whatever. You know, none of that stuff necessarily 
matters the way people, I think, the, the way people think it does, but it matters in terms of if someone believes in themselves more, then they are more likely to perform well. And if you give the players who are about to bat confidence that they have a much better shot against these guys, then you're doing the wrong thing. I mean, you're just doing the wrong thing. And not to mention the fact that Nick Anderson was tired, like and admitted it, like it's just like, you can't do that. That becomes like really, really malpractice. That's the malpractice bucket that we're talking about, you know? <laughs> well, I, and I think like that's the part of the decision that I don't know got enough sort of heat because like taking out Snell is bad. But if you bring in Diego Castillo or, you know, whoever, you know, Ryan Yardstick, you know, Pete Fairbanks, whomever, and they get through it, it's like, well, that was dumb, but it, it worked, right? But you bring in a guy who's kind of been torched. I don't know, like has been torched and had been giving up runs. I think he gave up runs on like six consecutive. That was the outings. seventh consecutive, which is a postseason Man. record. So the third time through the order penalty, you know, is a, is a real thing proved by years and years of evidence. But it is a thing during the regular season primarily. That's what the evidence shows, right? And the re- and one reason for that, you know, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason is that when you re- remove a starter in a three-game series, 70-plus percent of the time, you're bringing in a reliever that the opposing team has not seen. Sometime in, you know, often in months, you know, maybe in a year, you're not bringing in someone that the opposing team saw two days earlier, three days earlier, <laughs> right. and five days earlier. You're avoiding the third time through the order penalty and acquiring a fourth time through the order penalty. Right. That's a great point. Postseason series are not like the regular season, and you have to adapt. And the Rays did not adapt. They, they failed to adapt. That's the reason. The Dodgers had seen Nick Anderson. That's why Mookie Betts was so confident against him. That's why they won the game. And this is something we talked about, you know, with like looking back at the the Astros-Yankees series, you know, from from last year. Looking back at even, you know, and obviously there were mitigating circumstances, but the way that the Astros started to hit the Dodgers relievers uh, in, in 2017. Now maybe, I don't know, maybe that's bad. Maybe that's junk science based on some information we have. But the general idea holds that the more you expose relievers to elite hitters, that redounds to the benefit of the elite hitters. And so it's weird to see an organization that clearly makes very good decisions build such a bad plan. It's just weird. It is. And I think it speaks to how hard it is to adapt to the postseason, I guess. You know, that must be what it is. You know, I don't always agree with all their processes and and what it does for the sport and the industry and fans. But in terms of winning games, these are two of the five best in terms of maximizing what what their dollars get for wins, right? In terms of capitalism, they're the best capitalists. So... It's funny that they're bad at this, you know, both teams are in some ways. The Dodgers had, you know, it took them years to adapt appropriately. You know, for years they kept using Clayton Kershaw in relief where he was bad. This was the worst plan I've seen since the Dodgers built a plan around Kershaw pitching in relief last year. Okay, these men are all judged based on how they build their processes to beat certain circumstances. And then new circumstances come and play in the postseason and they all suck at it, basically. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us.
there are certain aspects of it though, like when you write something out, it's like, okay, we're going to take Snell out after, you know, third time through the order. And then if it's a, you know, a, 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 a bases empty situation, you know, we're going to bring in so-and-so. And if there's a guy on, we'll bring in Frank. Or, why do, I've been calling him Nick Franklin in my head for two months. I have no idea Who are why. you meaning? Was there a baseball? Yeah, Nick was Franklin there a baseball played for the Rays. Yeah, Andrew Friedman traded for him. I covered him for a little bit. Great guy. I've been calling him Nick Franklin in my head. Who are you actually months. talking about though? Nick Anderson. Oh, oh, they look alike. They have a similar beard. Yeah, yeah. It's, Do they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Wow, I just pulled him up in Baseball Reference. Yeah, a little bit. Nick Franklin, one of my one of my favorite uh, players I've ever covered for two weeks. Wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's like uh, Brendan Ryan for me. Oh my God, dude. Brendan Ryan is actually my single favorite ever player I've ever covered Whoa. for two weeks. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Who's your favorite guy you covered ever? Oh, that's a hard question. I, have I a think lot I of might know the answer, but I don't know if you even covered the guy. Who? John Lamb. Yeah, I never covered him in a game, in a, major, in a regular season game. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I covered him in spring training. I don't know. Um, Houston Street is up there. There's a lot. Nick Franklin is the subject, uh, is the utter of maybe my favorite quote ever said in baseball. He was the subject of a book in Iowa by by an MFA student at Iowa. Oh, um, really? At the, yeah, at a, when he played for the Cedar Rapids team or whatever, or whatever... One of the minor league teams up there and class A for the Mariners, like a year after he was a first round pick. And the writer essentially followed, it, it was about the team, but he followed him around mostly because he was the hot, hot shot prospect. He was doing really well that year. So this is for high A Clinton in uh, 2010. Franklin hit 281, 837 OPS. They're in the batting cage one day and the, and the writer asks him like, why are you such a dick? And he says, it's not that I'm a dick. I'm just, why am I supposed to act like I'm going to fail when I've never failed in my life? <laughs> Okay. And he's out of baseball, you know, at 29. That's a shame. That's a shame. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a fun little tangent. But uh, so they bring in Nick Anderson. Not a great move. His name's Nick Franklin, Andy. Is it? No, it's Nick Anderson. They didn't bring in Diego Castillo, who might have been the best guy in that I feel like pattern. you really like Diego Castillo. I don't know what this is, but I've heard you mention his name a lot more than anyone he's else. He's good. Him. Okay. I don't, I don't know that much about him, to be frank. He's good, right? Yeah, I mean, he was good, but they had a lot of good relievers. Yeah, he was really they good. Lot, they had a lot of good relievers, and the Dodgers made them look very ordinary. The Dodgers' offense was very, very good in this series. Really, really impressive. Their players were much better. Their position players were far better this postseason than any other postseason yeah. that I've yeah. seen. And that was the difference more than anything else, right? There's so many things that were better. Well, they caught some breaks. Yes. Uh, along the way. Their relievers were good. Victor Gonzalez was dominant. Uh, Julio Urias threw in like two of the best relief outings in the last right. five years in the postseason, in the right. same postseason. Right. Victor Gonzalez getting out of the eighth in game five is huge. Uh, you know, giving up the platoon advantage and getting out of it relatively easily. I remember us in September talking about how Urias was fine during the season, but really kind of unimpressive in a, in a perfectly fine mid-rotation starter. But in the postseason, he managed to do that, and he held down that role and then added on shutdown reliever. Well, his stuff plays up in relief, obviously. Actually, he seemed to be throwing more strikes. The Dodgers relievers attacked, uh, Gonzalez and Urias in, in particular, I think, attacked hitters in a, in a pretty impressive fashion, which made the sport, the, the game kind of fun because it went by. You know, there was not a lot of nibbling, and just the no. final innings of those games really just... Shot by. Yeah, I mean, Urias, uh, you know, clearly the, the scouting report said you can beat them in the zone with good stuff. And then Brousseau, our guy, just took that oh, pitch. Oh, man. What? Man, he really wanted to show you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> our guy, he, dude. He, re- he was like, I heard Pedro say I took two of the best at bats. I'm about to take one of the worst. 
What happened? He must have just thought it was off. I don't know. He must. They just look locked up. They look, look like the Dodgers have looked in, po- they, in right. seasons past. They look like <laughs> right. they did in, in Game 5 of the World Series in 2018. That's what they look like. Yeah, they look kind of ready to go. There's been a couple times where I've seen the hitters and they're like, yeah, they're they're kind of ready to go home. Game six of the NLCS in 2016, you know, Kyle Hendricks threw like a threw a Maddox oh, and like 60 pitches or something like that. You know, it was just like they were they were ready to go home. So the Dodgers win it all. The Turner thing casts a bit of Paul over it, but you know, they have to be the favorites again next year, right? <laughs> October 29th, 2020. Andy says it. Yeah, I mean, yes. If I had to bet on one team right now, I would bet on them. I don't see how they're not a 95-win team. You know, in a full season, they have an 8-win player in right field and a 5-win player in center and a 5-win player at short. So that's a lot of wins. It sure is. Let's. Uh, you want to go through some of their free agents to be and do back or gone? Okay, uh, yeah, sure. I'll ask you then, yeah. Okay, number one, Blake Trinan. Gone. Okay, number two, Jocktober Peterson. Gone. Number three, Enrique Hernandez. Gone. Number four, Pedro Baez. Back. Back. They can't let... They, they can't... <laughs> the 33-year-old middle reliever who spent his entire career with one organization will retire with the Dodgers. Yes. That Eric Nussbaum tweet that no matter what, it always must come down to this man, and then a paid picture of a smiling Pedro Baez was one of my favorites of the postseason. Yeah, like considering what the market is going to be for middle relievers this year... A one-year, $3 million deal for Pedro Baez might be the best he'll get. He's had a three ERA for his career. I think Baez will be back. You think Baez is the most likely of those four men to be back, yeah? Yes, Um, I do. All right, number five is uh, Justin Turner. I'm going to say back. I'm going to say back. You are. Okay. There's two more. Alex Wood. I think he will be gone, but it was very nice to see him pitch well in the postseason. He looked like the guy he had been as an all-star in 2017. Yeah, in 2017. Yeah. He's a guy who you know has repeatedly in his career thrown his arm off, and uh, it was nice to see him pitch. There are times when you when you watch Alex Wood and you're just like, "Oof, man, this is a little it's a little rough." And then your times where you're like, "Man, this guy is very good." I mean, he's got that crazy delivery that you know his coaches tried to get rid of when he was like 15. He's it's deception, baby. Yeah. You know, he's, you know, very nice man. So uh, I hope he does okay in the free agent market. It, you know, it's not going to be easy. I think the whole, like, you know, making yourself money in October thing is overplayed. But it can't hurt him to have thrown a couple of good outings in the at the end. You know, when he very nearly did not crack the roster, right? And missed, missed an earlier round. He could maybe sell himself as a swingman type, which I, I know is probably something he doesn't want to do. I think he probably still thinks that he can be a good big league starter. The issue is the, is the health at this point, I think, primarily. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason he didn't pitch this year. Yeah. Well, he seems like a guy who you, if you can get a quality 75 innings out of, like you kind of take it if you sort of sequence it right. He understandably probably sees a lot more for himself. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. But it was nice to see him pitch well in the postseason. And the last one is, is Jake McGee, the only man to not pitch in a Dodgers postseason win. The only person on the team to not appear in a Dodgers postseason win. Yeah, I would say uh, no, he will not be back. With the relievers, it's so hard to say because it's just dependent on how bad the market is this year. Because we know the Dodgers like Jake McGee, right? And so we don't know how many other teams are willing to pay him any amount of money. There's a larger chance than usual, I would say. Well, so the Dodgers signed Trinan for what, $9 million? Ten, $10 million. $10 million. Is there any way he gets $10 million? This offseason, even though, you know, he pitched just fine. Maybe. 
Not in one year. No, no, no. I can't see that. Yeah, if if, if Brad Hand, if the Indians are, are declaring that Brad Hand is 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 not an option for ten million, this winter is going to be really interesting because there's going to be a lot of talent available at like reasonable prices. Like Colton Wong is a free agent, you know, when like he's making, he was had like a twelve million dollar option when he's like I don't know maybe, you know, like a, a like a eight to ten million dollar player if you want to do it just on like straight war analysis or whatever. He's like a tends to be a two to three win. Yeah, player. and he was a five win player in twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah. If a team has money and you know a willingness to spend it. In this market, there's going to be a lot of good value out there. Now, like, are the Dodgers going to be that team? Probably not, just because they have so few holes. What it leads to, I think, is is them waiting until January and then spending, you know, four million on acquiring a guy who ordinarily should have should have taken a three year deal for thirty or something like that, right? And being able to pounce on, and then they, they can punch like pencil them into wherever they need to as a flexible option to replace, you know, Hernandez or or something. You know, or they they don't even necessarily need to replace Hernandez. They have Zach McKinstry who can, you know, be a second utility man just fine. You know, having not yet analyzed this in any real depth, I would see that in later on in the offseason they will add two or so. Like players who are two to three win caliber for not a lot of money. That's what I see happening. Yeah. And, you know, wait until the, the non-tender sort of Armageddon in about a month. I mean, there's going to be all-stars being non-tendered. Is that so? That is the scuttlebutt if you talk to people around the game. All-stars? Yeah. Like, wh- who's an example of an all-star that would be non-tendered? Gary Sanchez. Oh, like, a, okay, okay. Like a past all-star. Yeah, but like, you know, Gary well, like, Sanchez. It's been a couple years, hasn't it? He was an all-star last year. Oh, wow. Now, like, okay. he's a flawed last player. He could have been an all-star. He's a flawed player. You know, Colton Wong, I don't know if he's an all-star, but he won a gold glove last year. He got MVP votes. You know, he was no, good. No, Colton Wong is interesting, but he, you know, he, he wouldn't have been non-tendered because the the money, you know, you don't make $12.5 million as a non-power-hitting second baseman in arbitration. He would have been made, making more like seven. He was on a team-friendly contract, right? Or, a, or an extension. Yeah, yeah. It is notable. It's definitely notable, but it's not, you know, Sanchez is not going to be making $12 million at a, at, at a, in his second year of ARB. Other thing we don't know about arbitration is they haven't settled on how they're going to calculate the figures for this year. What metric are they going to use in terms of is it going to be not a, sure a 2.7 on much X, of anything? 2.7x of the of the 2020 season. Is it going to be 2019? And that I mean, like I saw an MLBTR projection for for example for Corey Seager, and depending on what what method they use, Seager's 2021 salary differs by I believe about five million dollars. Because if they use his 2020 and extrapolate it, that's a massive year. Oh boy. And if it uses 2019, <laughs> yeah, a, that's not, or 2018, that's, I mean, and both of them, that's really not that wonderful. So it's a big chunk of change. Yeah. There's a lot on the line for these guys. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Well, thank you to everyone for listening. It's been a really challenging year, I think, for all of us. Um, but we really do appreciate, you know, people following along, uh, sending us feedback, you know, uh, comments we've gotten on Twitter, you know, rates and reviews and all that sort of stuff. This was, uh, you know, not how we envisioned this year would go with the podcast, but we tried to make the best of it. So I just want to say thanks to all of you for, for listening. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We started it like March 9th. So good timing. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was Maybe fun. It was we'll, be back. we'll be back this year whenever there's a significant news in the offseason. We'll be back. We will be around, so feel free to reach out, and we really appreciate everyone listening. So thank you, stay safe, and we will be back when there's a reason to come back. Have a good one.